continue a series I have begun. I began way at the beginning of the summer uh, on uh, early Christianity uh, and uh, talked about just the earliest Christian communities as they are depicted in the second chapter of Acts. Uh, last week when I returned, uh, I talked about weird and wacky teachings of Christians in the second century, some of those uh, exotic sort of things that were going around and that forced Christians to begin thinking about their most basic teachings and in some ways refining and defining their most basic teachings. Today I want to talk to you about uh, something that moves us along a couple of centuries. I want to talk about early Christian monasticism. Uh, and one of the things I'm going to want to say is that uh, it, I'm going to go ahead and, and move forward to a different slide. We have these images of what monasticism might look like. And if your image is Julie Andrews and uh, a beautiful monastery in the Alps or something like that, uh, that's not what I'm talking about today. Uh, the image on the other side of what really is an image of an Ethiopian monk uh, is a little more like uh, what we're talking about in the early Christian church. And in fact, uh, I started to use an image of a Hindu holy man, uh, you know, the kind of guy who's bearing, barely wearing any clothes at all, sitting out in the open air, spending his time praying and meditating. That might be uh, something of a more appropriate image for early Christian monasticism. So uh, these are crazy, wild people who basically tuned in, turned on, dropped out, and went out in the desert to pray and, and fight demons and fun stuff like that. So that's really what I'm talking about today. In the background uh, are the teachings of Jesus uh, and the teachings of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus uh, said something in Matthew uh, chapter 19 about those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, those who make themselves single and unable to procreate. Uh, and as we will see, some early Christians took Jesus' words quite literally uh, about that. Uh, in the 19th chapter of Matthew is also the text that I've not listed there, but it's the standard text for Christian monasticism. It's about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks him the questions, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the answer to that. Uh, keep the commandments, which ones? Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard his word, he went away grieving for he had many possessions. But Throughout the history of the church, it's that text. Somebody like St. Anthony of Egypt will hear that biblical text read in church, and it strikes them, that's talking to me. That's God's calling on my life. I have to give up everything and simply give myself to following Jesus. Jesus gave an example of uh, a single life. The early Christian monks said, really, what we're doing is WWJD. Uh, we, are doing, we are being as close to being like Jesus as we possibly can. Paul, you remember, gave this famous thing about it is better to marry than to burn. Doesn't sound very positive about marriage, actually. 
and in fact, he goes on and says, it would be better if they were as I am, but if you need to, you know, you can, it's okay to get married. It's not really the highest endorsement of what you might call family values in the, uh, the scriptures. And we struggle sometimes with these scriptures, but you've got to say, a lot of what the early Christian monks were doing was what they saw as being in kind of a literal obedience to Jesus, to Jesus' very words, to the teachings uh, that had come before them. There were, in fact, some examples in the time of the church prior to Constantine, a second century teacher whom I did not mention last week, talking about the second century, was a guy named Tatian. He's very important in biblical studies because he was the first scholar to take all four of the Gospels and weave them together into a single uh, narrative of the Gospels. It's called Tatian's Diatessaron. Diatessaron means through the four. Uh, and in a lot of early Christian churches, di uh, Tatian's Diatessaron was writ read in the church in place of the actual readings from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Tatian was the head of a group of people that they called encratites. And encratite means one who practices self-restraint, especially sexual uh, self-restraint. So there were ideas about monasticism uh, earlier. And then the early teacher Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, his name is spelled uh, in English, Origen lived in the time of persecution. He wanted to be martyred. Uh, and his father was a martyr for the faith. He wanted to be like his father. He wanted to be like Jesus in being crucified. And there was a time of persecution, and, it, and the biography says that he was ready. He was a young man. He was ready to go out and tell them, I'm a Christian, so he could be martyred for the faith. And his mother hid his underwear. Uh, and, and he wasn't able to go. It's that strange thing about, you know, your mother always said, make sure you wear clean underwear because if you're ever in a terrible accident or something like that, you know, and so I guess it had some effect on, on Origen. But Origen later in life, in literal obedience to the words of Jesus, castrated himself uh, to made himself a eunuch as he saw it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that was his form of martyrdom. Uh, and in fact, a lot of early Christian monks thought of themselves uh, as practicing a new kind of martyrdom right after the time when martyrdom was over. You probably know the story, but it was, in fact, the dude depicted on this coin that I have, and I'm going to hand around. It's a man whose name was Constantine. He was emperor, he was co-emperor from 306 AD and sole emperor from uh, around the 320s. He died in 337. He was the son of a Christian woman named Helen. I'm gonna pass this around, by the way. Uh, I'd like to get it back. Um, <laughs> don't think it's fabulously valuable. I'm, I'm just telling you this, so you don't think it's, you know, if you thought it was fabulously valuable, you might. No, um, nah, you wouldn't think about that, would you? No, actually, the, we estimate that there are between 50 and 60,000 Roman coins still going around. A uh, guy found several thousand of them a few years ago uh, in an excavation in southern Britain. Uh, and uh, they go on eBay for five to ten bucks, actually, so uh, not a fabulously uh, valuable thing. Now, if you want a denarius coin, because that's explicitly mentioned in the Bible, you've got to pay 80 or 90 bucks to get one of those. But this is a little tiny, like a penny coin. They called it an ice, a bronze or copper coin. But it does show the image of Constantine. He's shown with having a big 
bull neck like a football player, you know. And I'm not sure he really had that. I think it was just a way of sucking up to the emperor to depict him as being very uh, jockly and masculine and so forth like that. Constantine, though, uh, had a Christian mother. Uh, the story that the historian Eusebius tells about Constantine is that he was about to fight a decisive battle against his major opponent, the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And that night in a dream, he saw uh, an image that is the image of the, the chi and the rho image, the first two uh, letters for the word Christ in Greek, Christos, the chi rho sign. He sees that and he hears a voice that sounds in hoc signo vinces, in this sign shall you conquer. He instructed his soldiers to put this image on their shields. They went out uh, to the battle the next day, hacked their opponents up, and won the victory in the name of Jesus. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, it's kind of one of those very ambiguous things. And so Constantine has always been regarded ambiguously. In 317, he and his co-emperor Licinius uh, issued an edict from Milan in which they said that Christianity should be tolerated along with other religions in the Roman Empire. And a lot of people will say, sort of collapsing a lot of history together and say, Constantine became a Christian, he Christianized the Roman Empire, turned it all into Christian, so on and so forth. Not really true. He allowed for the toleration of Christianity in the Roman Empire, and he kind of favored Christianity. He was not baptized until his deathbed, but that was not unusual. They had this interesting belief that if you ever committed a sin after baptism, you were going to be cut off from the, you'd cut yourself off from the community of the church from that time, time on. So they, they, they laid odds that it was less likely that you would sin after baptism if you were baptized the few moments before you died. <laughs> this has been proven to be statistically true, uh, but eventually they figured God could sort of see around the, the ruse and church had to begin thinking about okay, what do we do in cases like this. He's not baptized until his deathbed. It's clear that he favored Christianity uh, and in the Eastern Orthodox churches he is celebrated as uh, they have a feast day of Saints Constantine and Helena. Uh, he is regarded as a saint and, and honored, venerated as a saint. In a lot of Protestant Christianity, he's seen as being the real bad guy because he's the guy that corrupts Christianity by making it easy, uh, by uh, building church buildings and so forth. And, and uh, sort of for the first time, whatever you think about Constantine, for the first time in the 320s A.D., it's possible to be a comfortable Christian. And that's precisely the moment when Christian monasticism emerges precisely at that moment during the time when that coin going around was new that people have this idea of a kind of heroic struggle against the devil. The very first person who illustrates this is Saint Anthony of Egypt. Now in the calendar of all the saints you got to watch out for Anthony's. There's a lot of them. If you see a Catholic church named Anthony it's likely not this one. It's more likely to be Saint Anthony of Padua who is a very a uh, very popular saint, always depicted carrying a child. That's uh, San Antonio de Bejar, which uh, is 
the Alamo, right? Uh, that's uh, St. Saint Anthony of Padua. This is St. Anthony of Egypt, uh, who is the first monk, not really, uh, but the story about St. Anthony is that he grew up in a fairly well-to-do family. Uh, his parents died. He was left with his sister and an inheritance of money. He went to church one day and he heard read in church that scripture from St. Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you would be talios, if you would be complete or perfect, you must sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. So what he did was he took the money that he had from his parents, he took part of it and gave it to a community of Christian women to keep his sister. Now that's interesting, there was already a community of Christian women. He couldn't be the first monk, literally, because there was this other community. He gave the rest of the money to the poor in literal obedience to the gospel, and then he apprenticed himself to an old monk, an old man, uh, who was living in the tombs on the edge of the city, and he, and he sort of learned to live singly by himself with this old guy. Another good reason why it might be questionable to say that St. Anthony was the very first of Christian monks. And then in 320 A.D., right after the time when Constantine has allowed for the toleration of Christianity in the empire, in around 320 A.D., he goes out into the Egyptian desert, a weird strange place. His flight into the desert is always called anachoresis. Anachoresis means getting out to the countryside. Kori means the countryside. Anachoresis, flight to the countryside. It is what a lot of Christians had done during the times of persecution, during the times of uh, official imperial persecution of Christianity. Uh, wiser Christians just got themselves out of the cities. They went out to the countryside so they could protect themselves and their families. That was a flight. No longer do you have to fly to the countryside to avoid persecution. He's fleeing to the countryside voluntarily to be out in this weird place where you can struggle and fight with the demons and pray. And he thinks he's being like Jesus, just as Jesus went into the desert and was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. This is how Anthony is going to spend his life. There was no community around Anthony. He had no place to live. There was no beautiful monastery. He's just out in the desert living by himself. I really think if you could see an image of him, he would have looked more like a Hindu holy man than anything else. This wrinkled up old guy out in the desert and people would occasionally bring him food and uh, uh, occasionally they'd bring him the Holy Communion. He fought the demons in the desert. This happens all the time in these stories of the early Christian monks. They're not even impressed with it in these stories. It's so ordinary. He went out and he fought a demon. He saw a demon who tempted him to buy books. Then a very interesting thing for theologians and scholars and, and so forth. Uh, the demon tempts him to eat a lot of food and so forth. I always have to stop at this point and tell my students, now let me say something on behalf of the demons. I mean, students just regard this is absolutely crazy. And what I tell them is this. Now, look, if you go without eating and without sleep for many, many days, you are likely to see some demons and angels. 
And then the question is, what's more normal in the course of human existence, to eat the amount of carbohydrates and other foods that we eat and get regular sleep and not see demons and angels, or to go frequently without sleep, frequently without food, and see demons every now and then? You've you got to kind of think about this. But, you know, it's a kind of serious question, really, because a lot of the folks who fast and stay awake and pray all the time and see angels and demons as part of their normal experience look at the rest of us and say, you're drugged people. You just can't see reality because of the, the way that you live your lives. Okay? It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. And then I tell my students, look at the New Testament. Hello. Uh, there, there's lots of stuff in there about struggling with the demons and seeing the angels and so forth. So that's part of what he does. He comes to be a kind of superstar out in the desert. Uh, people come to see him. It's kind of like an event, you know, like going to see a rock star or something. And they bring him little gifts and and somebody says the, the desert became a city. So many people were going out there and imitating Anthony and imitating his way of life. He's the classic example of what we call uh, an anchorite. Nope, that the, it, it's right about there. Uh, but you see that word anchorite, it comes from the word anachoresis. Uh, and in Latin, it's eremita. It means uh, the word from which our word hermit is derived. It means a person who decides to live entirely by themselves. That's the model Anthony sets, the lone individual monk out there in the desert uh, doing their struggle. Now, a very different type of monasticism originated within a few years of Anthony's time by another guy whose name is Pacomius. Uh, he's uh, associated with something we call Cenobitic monasticism. Pacomius was a contemporary of Anthony. He had heard about Anthony out in the desert. It is said that Pacomius had been a Roman soldier. Uh, and you can see that he's a kind of organizing guy. You know, there are some people who are just kind of uh, flow along and do what inspires them. That's, that's more like Anthony. And then there are other people who say, no, 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 we've got to have a list here. We've got we to figure out how to do things. We've got to figure out where we're going to go and do. He probably picked that up from the Roman military. He organized a group of monks into the desert, into, you know, we call it a monastery, but it's really a little camp out in the desert. They're just camping out in the desert together. Uh, surrounded by a wall for protection, uh, divided into quarters with two streets, uh, one street uh, going north-south, one street going east-west, intersecting in the middle. A lot of people say, oh, it's the image of a cross, but actually it's the way a Roman military camp had been laid out with those two streets like that. So he's probably organizing this monastery on the example of a Roman camp. He gives us what we call cenobitic monasticism. That's a big word that comes from the Greek expression kinos vios. Kinos means common or held together. Vios, like in biology, means life. So a kinos vios is a common life, a life that you live together. Uh, it's the earliest organized form of monasticism. But even then, I would say, uh, in Pacomius's monasteries, there was no rule that was written down to govern the monks. There was no, the community was seen simply as a transitional stage 
on the way to becoming a hermit or an anchorite. So you have a, a, a camp out in the desert of people who are living out there, praying together, maybe eventually having the Lord's Supper if they can get a priest to come out. But most of these guys were not priests. Some women are attracted to the monasteries. There were monasteries of men and women together. There are all kinds of interesting variations. There's sorts of things that later on would not be allowed in monasticism. Uh, but the Sayings of the Desert Fathers is one of the early books that tells the story uh, about these early monks. And there's another one by a guy named Lausius, who has what we call the Lausiac history. Uh, and, um, yeah, it sounds lousy, I know, but it's, it's L-A-U, just to be clear about that. Uh, and in these stories, they tell wild, crazy things. A couple gets married, and on their wedding night, before they've consummated the marriage, this angel shows up and says, don't do it. Uh, God has called you to be single. And so they decide to live together, man and woman, for all of their lives, but never have sex, and devote themselves to praying and fasting and so forth. Now that would absolutely never be allowed in the later history of monasticism. Absolutely taboo. But, but the, the, what you've got to have in your mind in the fourth century, in the 300s is monasticism really is a kind of wild, crazy thing. So here's another image. Christian hippies. Okay, they're like, it's like Austin. I mean, it's like you just, <laughs> you just float around, you know, you just, I know, I have a daughter who lived there for 10 years. She just escaped uh, in the last uh, few months. But, um, but you know, this, this wild, crazy life. And it's attractive to younger people, especially. They sort of like the idea. Tune in, turn on, drop out, just go out in the desert, fight the demons, heroize these men and women who are living these heroic lives. And Pacomius has found a way to, to do it better. Not everybody could live singly. I mean, I think if you try to, if you ever hiked by yourself, I mean, I've gone on one solo hike where I went out into the wilderness by myself at night, and it's spooky, it's scary. I mean, I was kind of surrounded by Washington, D.C., but that's kind of spooky and scary. <laughs> anyway, you know, no, I was actually out in Maryland from Washington, D.C., but, but not everybody could handle just being out in the desert by themselves all the time. So Pacomius's monasteries uh, begin developing, and that then leads to uh, several different developments. Monasticism begins spreading around the Mediterranean from the time of Anthony and Pacomius. And you still get this basic division into anchorites and Cenobites, you know, those who are living by themselves, those who are in these camps or communities kind of preparing to go out. What, the, what they would do in the Cenobitic communities is they would practice going out for a night and then coming back and then go out for two nights and then go out for a week or something. So it was a kind of staging point to, to go out and be a hermit. And then maybe toward the end of your life, which wasn't going to be very long, uh, you could go out and, and just spend all of your time out there in the desert. But lots and lots of different patterns begin emerging. Uh, in Palestine, a new, now I don't mean Palestine, Texas, down there in East Texas. I mean in the, what we call the Holy Land, where Israel is today. A new form of monasticism emerged in which two or three monks would live together in a cage. They call, in, in, not in a cage, in a cave. They call that a lavra. Uh, and that's a different form, St. Sabas, S-A-B-A-S. 
uh, is associated with that form of monasticism. If you ever heard of a town called San Saba, Texas, uh, that's St. Sabas that it's actually uh, named for. A lot of these kind of come down to us in Catholic tradition and sort of embedded in Spanish language. Uh, lots and lots of different communities in the East and the West were developing. There's a guy named John Cassian in Gaul, what is now France, who develops a book called The Institutes, and he tries to regularize life for the monasteries. But in the Western church, the Latin-speaking Western church, the person who really regularized monasticism was a guy named Benedict, uh, born around 480 A.D., so this is a full 150 years after the time of uh, Anthony and Pacomius, born into a wealthy Italian family, but he's also living at a really interesting time. You know, I told you Anthony and Pacomius were living in the time of Constantine. Where's my coin? <laughs> okay, has he gone around this side yet? Okay, it needs to come over here to this side. Uh, but Benedict is living in the time when the last emperor had been deposed, 476 A.D., the, the child Romulus Augustulus. What really happened was that my wife's relatives, all these German people, had come into the Roman Empire. She grew up down in Rosebud. You, you know, that's, that's a suburb of Golinda where <laughs> Susan grew up. Um, down the, the central Texas German community. But these Germanic tribes came into the Roman Empire beginning in the 300s, and they begin... Uh, attacking Rome and then sort of making compromises. A lot of the Roman military became Germanic people. Uh, the city of Rome fell for the first time in around 430 A.D. Uh, when the Huns came in and took the city. The last emperor there was 476. Uh, Benedict is born in the aftermath of, of that. What's happening is that the Eastern Empire over in Constantinople is flourishing and it's going to go on for a thousand years beyond that time, the Byzantine Empire. The Western Empire has fallen apart. Society is a very, very dangerous place. His parents send him to Rome to be educated. He's just horrified uh, at the immorality, the laxness that he finds down there in Rome. So he decides to become a hermit. He's heard the story about St. Anthony of Egypt he finds a cave near a town called Subiaco, or Subiaco in Italian. Anybody ever heard of a place called Subiaco? Where did you see it? In Arkansas. Bing, you got it right. Believe it or not, there is a Benedictine monastery in Arkansas, and it's called Subiaco. Uh, so, yeah, you are the one. You got that one correct. Uh, Subiaco. I got to tell you, as a historian, the story of Benedict is a very suspicious story for a couple of reasons. One is that all the names seem to be made up. Benedictus means the blessed one. He's got a sister named Scholastica, which sounds nice, but it means schoolgirl. Uh, the old monk who helps him out and finds the cave and his kind of is his emissary to communicate with the outside world is called Romanus, which means the Roman dude. Uh, it's just all the characters have these suspicious names, and the story was told by a high executive named Gregory, who happened to be the bishop of Rome 
the Pope. Uh, and, and it looks like Gre Gregory, we know, was trying to bring all the monks under a single rule. So we really don't know if Benedict himself, uh, if this story fits him or if this is just a kind of stylized story. Now, don't tell the Benedictines I said that because they are very committed to the story about St. Benedict. But I have to tell you, historians are a little suspicious about this. But the story is he tried to be a hermit and then, this part I find very, very believable, he just had a natural knack for organizing people together. People kind of liked hanging around him. And he tried to be a hermit, and he tried to be a hermit, but there were all these guys who were always kind of hanging around the cave saying, hey, Benedict, can I do something for you? Uh, and, and he says, yeah, well, let the, and he makes a list, you know, and says, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, and so forth. Around uh, 520 A.D., he's around 40 years old at that time, he flees to uh, a mountain called Casino, not to the kind of casino you're thinking about, but to a mountain called Casino. And under that mountain, uh, Monte Casino, he forms a monastery. One of the great tragedies of World War II was that the uh, Italians who were supporting Mussolini were holed up at, at uh, Monte Cassino and the United States Air Force bombed uh, Monte Cassino. Uh, you know, a lot of discussion, did they have to do that and so forth. But he fled to Cassino and he starts organizing a new monastery there. And he writes a rule for the monastery. Now Benedict's rule is one of the great classics of Christian literature. I love to assign it to my students because most of the stuff we assign is fairly esoteric, fairly theological, starts with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the role of Scripture and so forth. Benedict, the wonderful thing about him is he can't think theologically at all. It's lovely. He's the most practical thinking guy. He tries to do deep spirituality and theology every now and then. Then he realizes out of his depth and he's back to things like how many liters of wine per day should each monk be allocated. That's the kind of thing Benedict likes to do. Uh, and the answer is a quarter of a liter, which is not bad uh, for each monk every day. And then he says, but, you know, if they're ill or something, they can have more. So, you know, you have to b exercise. It, it's, a, it's a lovely document composed around 535, 540 for Monte Cassino. Uh, he says at the beginning of it that there are four types of monks. There are the gyratory monks, he says, who just wander around everywhere without any kind of commitment whatsoever. Uh, they are the worst kind of monks. And then there are the hermits, and they are even worse. See, you can see this guy is not a systematic thinker. You know, he says, these are the worst, and then these are even worse than they are. And the hermits are worse because they have no rule whatsoever. They have no abbot. They have no community. He lists one other kind of monk that's probably like the, the monks in the Lavras in Palestine. And then, he says, the highest form of monasticism is to be a Cenobite, living in a community under a rule. See, this is the kind of thinker that Benedict is. And he says then the rule uh, has to be administered by an abbot. Now the abbot is the father. Abbas means the father of the monastery. And he really is to be a father figure to the monks in the monastery. He is to rule wisely with a council of elders around him. Uh, so the elder monks are to give him advice, but the abbot makes the decisions about what they are to do. 
Uh, he invents basically the idea that's so important in Catholic monasticism, what we call the novitiate. The novitiate means the process by which you become a monk. See, Benedict practically realized that not everybody is cut out for monasticism. Can I get an amen? Right? Not everybody's cut out to be a monk, to be celibate all their lives and give up all their possessions. So what he does is he develops a system by which you come into the monastery, you stay there for at least two years, uh, and you thoroughly experience the life of the monastery. You know exactly what you're getting into before you make a commitment to be a monk. Uh, and only at that point can the abbot admit you to full membership in the community. He also develops a process for excommunication from the monastery. What do you do if one of the monks is doing something that contrary to the rule? Uh, he's got a girlfriend or something like that, right? Uh, and you examine the case and you may, you know, he's got all these rules. You make sure that you know the facts of the matter. Uh, but then you have to announce to the community that brother such and such is no longer part of the monastery. And that means they're not excommunicated from the church, the Catholic church. They're just out of communion with that particular monastery. So the monastery is a little communion that works with its own set of rules in addition to the big set of rules that works for all of the Christians. It's a wonderful book full of all kinds of uh, wisdom, very specific matters about the life of monasteries and how they operate. One of the things that happened is that in this period of social dissolution in the West, the monasteries became havens of stability. Uh, when society is falling apart, if you were traveling, it was very dangerous and you wanted to get to a place that was safe. One of the things monasteries did was they acted as hotels for travelers. And one of the most important roles that Benedict describes is the role of the porter. Now, the porter sits at the gate and the porter you know, uh, is in the lodge. He sort of controls input-output in the monastery and sort of examines you. And if you're a real uh, genuine traveler, then the uh, porter is going to allow you in and allocate you your quarter of a liter of wine for the day. Thank you very much. And give you the place to sleep, which wasn't like the Holiday Inn or anything, or the Jewel Hotel or anything like that. But uh, it's a place that you, you knew you would be safe in the monastery. I think a lot of men and women chose to be monks because they knew that they would be safe, they would be stable. A lot of parents gave their children to monasteries to be raised there. So one of the interesting things you've got to imagine, you know, you always think monastery, all men, all women. Actually, you've got to imagine a bunch of kids hanging around monasteries because their parents had sort of give them to the monastery to raise them, knowing maybe the parents didn't have the resources or knowing that they might get a better education. Copying manuscripts. Some of the brothers had the ability to write, and so monasteries become centers for transmission of data. That's my term for it. Uh, you'd have one room called the scriptorium where uh, one of the better readers with a better accent or at least an understandable accent would sit at the front of the room reading out and the, mon and the monks are copying uh, the manuscripts. That happened within a, uh, a generation or two of St. Benedict himself. Benedictine monasteries throughout Europe become havens of literary 
uh, libraries and places where learning is handed on from one generation to another. Much, much later, you know, maybe a thousand years later, 900 years later, they're going to be the seeds from which medieval universities grow. But I know a little bit of this because when I was in Oxford, each of the Oxford colleges was originally a little monastery. And I was in Oxford two weeks ago, and when I went in, you go in through the porter's lodge, and you talk to the porter and explain to them that I'm an old member of the college, and that's supposed to let me in. And it always has, except this past time, they kicked me out because they were having a wedding in the college, and they wouldn't let me in for that occasion. But, you know, you get a little picture of monastic life there. Well, I want to move ahead uh, a little bit and say... Monasticism offers a challenge to Protestants especially. It was done away with at the time of the Reformation, and that had some terrible effects. It really meant all of the institutions for helping the poor, helping the sick, were basically done away with at the time of the Reformation. And it created enormous problems for Europe and Britain uh, throughout uh, the first century or two after the time uh, of the Reformation. Some vestiges remained. In England, one of the interesting things was they did away with the monasteries, but they made four exceptions, Oxford, Cambridge, Eton, and Winchester, right? You know, the famous schools of Eton and Winchester. It was a joke when I was in Oxford. One guy says, I went to a very violent school. The other one says, Eton, and he says, damn nearly, <laughs> right? Uh, no. E-T-O-N, not that kind of Eton. Uh, through the 1880s, fellows at Oxford colleges and teachers at Eton and Winchester were all required to be single, and they were. Uh, we, we explained North Oxford grew up after they allowed the fellows to get married in the 1880s, and uh, that was a very new thing, but very traditionally the Oxford faculty were single. So an Oxford faculty member, a fellow of uh, Lincoln College, that's my college, uh, born in 1703, became a fellow of Lincoln in 1725. His name was John Wesley, and he was single, and he was required to be single. And what the college has uh, in John Wesley's own hand is the Latin letter that he wrote in 1751 when he became married and was required by the statutes of the college to resign his uh, fellowship in the college because they didn't accept uh, married people. Uh, one of the things that's been happening is that many Christians have lived very faithful single lives since that time. A very good example of that is Methodist itinerant preachers in the 1800s. The itinerant preachers, and there were local preachers, but the itinerant preachers traveled huge circuits, 200, 300 miles. They'd find new communities at a place called, say, uh, Farmer's Branch, Texas, and, and come over there and start preaching and organize Webb Chapel. Uh, that's the oldest church in this area. But they almost all of them were single because they just they, they, you couldn't keep a family if you were living that kind of itinerant lifestyle sometimes required, as I say, by circumstances. So the Methodist itinerants are a good example of that. Since the 1800s, though, we've seen various Protestant groups, uh, Anglicans, Church of Scotland, uh, some Lutheran communities in Europe have begun building Christian monasteries. 
And my friend Elaine Heath, has Elaine spoken here at this class before? Elaine Heath is on the faculty at SMU and she's building new forms of monasticism here in Dallas, Texas, where people live together in a community under a rule together, not necessarily making a commitment to be single all of their lives, but a commitment to stay in a particular community, maybe a very troubled community, uh, and be a kind of means of God's grace there. So monasticism is an idea that really uh, doesn't go away. It basically is, when you come right down to it, the idea of simply wanting to live a life completely devoted to God. And some folks can do that, married and with children and so forth, and others find they need to be by themselves, and they're called to do that. Believe it or not, almost every time I give this lecture in my classes, I will have students come by the next week, knock on my door timidly and say, that's what God's called me to do, but I'm a Baptist. Okay, you know, or I'm a Methodist, what am I going to do? And we have to sort of talk through what some of the options are for them. But really, I have no doubt that God calls women and men today to that kind of single, devoted life. You can make the case that what John Wesley did in 1751 was a very serious mistake for John Wesley. Yeah. If you want the evidence, I'm editing his letters in the period when he broke up with his wife right now, and uh, you can make the case for that. But God calls some people to a life of singleness, to a life of devotion, sometimes uh, to a life of prayer. That's a little bit about Christian monasticism, but the question I have for you is, how do you respond to Jesus' challenge to the rich young ruler? Uh, is it just for one set of people, or how is it that you will give everything you have and everything you have everything that you are to follow God. That's really the challenge that the gospel, I think, continues to lay before each of us, and each of us has to figure out how we're going to hear that gospel call and follow it. God's calling you. I have no doubt about that. The question is, to what is God calling you today? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.